You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 414, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Drew Bragg is the staff engineer at Within3. Other than Ruby, he likes ice hockey, both playing and watching, and board games. He claims he's not very good at writing bios in the third person, but I think he did just fine. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Drew. Thanks, Brittany. I'm really excited to be here. I am so glad to have you. This is going to be a really fun episode. So, Drew, what is your developer origin story? It's kind of a long roundabout journey. I actually discovered programming in high school. I was really bad at math, and my friend introduced me to a way to cheat on my math tests by programming calculators to help us do the math better. We had those TI-83 graphing calculators. They run a form of BASIC called TI BASIC, and he taught me kind of how to make it easier to get through my math tests. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world that I was able to make this machine do the things that I wanted it to do. And I was very fortunate that my high school actually offered a couple of intro to programming classes. So I ended up taking intro to Java. We also had a regular computer science class that I took. I might be dating myself a little bit here, but I also took intro to visual basic, if anybody remembers that. And I thought it was awesome. This was what I was going to do 100%. I loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. And I went to college and they were like, oh, hey, you don't have enough math experience or credits or whatever it was. I was basically going to need to take almost a full year of math credits just to be able to work in a computer science major. And I was like, nah, it's not for me. Changed my major about two years, realized I wasn't going to do anything with the major anyway. So I joined the army. I was a mechanic in the army. I was working on cars as a hobby at the time. So it just seemed like a natural transition. Then when I became a civilian, I was a mechanic for a while, eventually moved into managing auto centers, which was not for me at all. And luckily, boot camps were getting very big. No math requirement, not a four-year degree requirement. Just come in, we'll teach you to program, and then we'll put you in the workforce. And that's what I did. And now been here for a few years and uh, recently started, actually, I guess not recently. It's been about a year and a half. I've been at Within3. And yeah, that's how I got here. That is such a cool story. I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> First of all, after being a auto mechanic manager, does that apply to your day-to-day life at all? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the most of the managerial skills that I picked up in the auto industry were just kind of like managing a budget or making a schedule or whatever. Anything that I have resembling a leadership skill really came from the army. Most of what is applicable from my former career is just being a mechanic. There's a lot of diagnosing. There's a procedure to figuring out what is actually causing an issue and fixing the issue at the root cause, not just slapping band-aids on. And that's definitely something that I think helps me a lot as an engineer. It's a lot less backbreaking now, although carpal tunnel is a real concern, but at least it's not my spine and knees that are hurting all the time. That makes me think of that episode of The Office where they're complaining about how the office workers might get carpal tunnel. But meanwhile, the warehouse is like, we could actually die by the machinery down here. Yeah. So you guys have a your cushy jobs. So right, that's funny. right. <laughs> yeah. Compared to my last two careers, really, this is definitely the lowest risk career I've had. No one's trying to shoot at me in this job. So there's that and there's no cars about to potentially fall on me or take a finger off. 
Well, that's good. Now, what got you into the Ruby community? Was it just based on the boot camp that you chose? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, it really was the boot camp. I chose Launch Academy just basically because they were in Philadelphia. There was one other boot camp in Philadelphia at the time, and the name escapes me at the moment. But I kind of went to the two of them, sat in on a class, just looked at them and decided on Launch Academy. Knew nothing about Ruby going in. I knew some JavaScript just from filling about on my own websites and whatnot and thought that's kind of what I was going to do. Yeah, I'll learn this Ruby thing, but they're going to teach me JavaScript and React. And that seems to be what everybody's using nowadays. But I don't think I even finished the pre-work for it before I was like, this Ruby language is freaking awesome. Like my code makes so much more sense. Just writing something out just seems more like, yeah, I'm just writing what comes to my brain instead of having to look up certain syntaxes or, oh, I forgot this brace there. JavaScript's not as bad with semicolons as Java was, but like, cool, no semicolons. And I ended up really enjoying doing the backend work and working with Rails and Ruby. And I was very fortunate that the first job I got, I was able to build one of my first greenfield projects with Rails when everything else they had was a node. And I moved pretty fast in it and management was kind of impressed with how quickly I was able to get out basically a full application in Rails compared to how they had been doing it in Node. So we kind of moved into doing all Rails and Ruby and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love working with Ruby and Rails is a blast. That is so great. So that leads us up to your current role at Within3. So tell me what's a day in the life of the staff engineer at Within3? There are no two days that are the same, really. It's an interesting role. It was really carved out both from the business's needs and what I wanted to do. I have a decent amount of Rails experience and arguably a a lot of Rails and Ruby knowledge, which the team needed. We have a very old Ruby on Rails application. It was actually Rails 2.0 and Ruby 1.8 that was originally written in. So it has been around for a while and it's kind of changed its focus and scope a bit. So there are parts of the app that can be a little hard to work with because it's your traditional legacy app. There were decisions made at the time that were probably great for what they were trying to accomplish at that moment, but we're not there anymore. We're not doing that thing, but it was a very small team for a while. So there wasn't the ability to go in and like, oh, hey, we need to really change this. It was more of a We need this thing to still work with what we're doing now. But once we started growing a lot, there was a need to really make sure that the code going in followed good patterns. We weren't repeating any bad patterns and we needed someone to really help direct getting back on the rails way of doing things so that we could move a lot faster So that's the bulk of my role is helping us take an app that is doing some really interesting things but is really kind of away from the traditional Rails way of doing things, which the entire team has agreed, like, hey, we'd like to go back to Rails. Like, Rails isn't perfect for everything, but in our case, we would definitely speed up if we got closer to how the framework wants us to do things. Rails is not perfect for everything? How dare you, sir? (laughs) I'm so sorry. So we are very fortunate in the fact that you and I just got to meet in person at Sin City Ruby. Now, Remote Ruby did the greatest recap episode. Loved it so much. And we'll definitely plug that into the show notes. I highly recommend you listen. 
But let's talk about our favorite parts of the conference and let's kick off with your talk, which you absolutely nailed. Loved it so much. Thank you. I have been getting a lot of really good feedback on it. I was super nervous going in. It was my first time doing a talk at any conference. And I was really excited when Jason came to me and asked me if I wanted to speak. And I immediately said yes. And it wasn't until like, I don't know, maybe a day later, I realized I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Like I have all these ideas of potentially good talks, but some of them are very technical. Some of them aren't actually that interesting, but it was actually Nick Schwatterer's talk from RubyConf on Ruby archaeology that kind of gave me the motivation to do my idea was I had this collection of snippets of just weird Ruby code and I just wanted to like show them to everybody. I just wanted to be like, look at this. Isn't this weird? <laughs> like, you know, you could do this. This is chaos. And I guess my original idea actually was to do it as a carnival. So like I was going to kind of do it like a carnival sideshow, like prepare yourselves. You should leave if you're faint of heart or whatever. And it just, <laughs> it wasn't working. And I remember I was like laying in bed and not sleeping because my brain wouldn't shut off. And I just started cracking up laughing. And my girlfriend's like, what are you laughing about? And I told her I could do it like a game show. And she's like, do what? I'm like, my Sin City Ruby talk. And she thought I was an absolute wacko. But like for the next week or so, I just walked around the house pretending to be a game show host. And I was like, yep, no, this feels right. This is how I'm going to do it. And then it happened and it worked out really well. And, and everyone has given me really great feedback. So I'm excited. It seems to have gone well. And hopefully it will not be my last time talking at a conference. Are you planning on being at RailsConf? I will absolutely be at RailsConf. Well, that's amazing because you definitely should sign up for a lightning talk. Even just doing a short version of that, I think would be incredibly popular. Now, I do have to confess to you. So I was your contestant on the game show. And the reason for that is because I was speaking after you. I looked like Storm walking around. I just had so much energy like in my hands. I just knew that I was like anticipating speaking. And so you called out to the audience. You're like, I need a volunteer. And my hand shot up. I was just like, oh, this is what I'm doing now. I have energy. Yes, me, yeah. pick me. And I was the first one. <laughs> it was great. It was great too. I had spoken to Andrew Mason right beforehand. And I was like, hey man, when I ask for a volunteer, I need you to raise your hand in case no one else raises their hand. So he was like my fallback plan. So I was basically looking right at him when I said, I need a volunteer. And I just, out of the corner of my eye, saw your hand rocket up. And I was like, well, I guess we're doing this now. Brittany, come on up. And I was like, this is great for you. You get to practice and like, get the jitters out by speaking ahead of time. I'm kind of jealous. It really helps. I mean, honestly, I felt so much smoother going into my talk. And for me, you know, as someone who has currently shifted into an engineering management role, I'm not writing as much code anymore. I was like, oh, I'm going to come up for a question. Like, this will be fine. We'll see how I do. And then you kept me up there the whole talk, <laughs> which I did not anticipate. And so that was really fun because you let me have audience interaction. And I feel like our banter back and forth was really fun. Yeah, it was great. You were probably the perfect contestant. You got like the right amount of questions right that it kept it fun. Not like these are entirely too impossible to answer. And then you got enough wrong that I was like, cool, I'm not an idiot for thinking these were weird Ruby snippets. And I will say that I stumped Chris Seaton on one of my <gasps> questions. I feel like I should have that framed on my wall. Is like, wait, I stumped you with some syntax? And he's like, yeah, I, I totally spaced and forgot you could do that. I was like, this is amazing. That is a badge of honor. That is quite impressive. 
But in this circumstance, it's two podcast hosts together. I tend to think that they do well, which leads me into my next question, Drew. Why did you start a podcast? Well, I have been trying to find my way of giving back to the community. Like the Ruby and the Rails community is really an awesome community. It's I've been in a few others, like I've dabbled and they're just not as friendly and welcoming and just so like everyone just wants you to succeed in the Ruby and Rails community. And I've tried to write blog posts, but like I'm not a very good, fast typer. My brain goes a little too fast for my hands to keep up. So like it's hard for me to write a blog post because then I can also go back and read it. And then I think about, oh, should I say it this way? And then my sentences get long and run on just like speaking now and run on sentences, but it's a little different when you're talking. So when it's actually basically your fault, you put together the giant collab of podcasts at RubyConf and I got to sit in on the audience and watch it. It was great because it's like, hey, these are my three favorite podcasts and they're doing a crossover episode. This is awesome. And I'm watching it being recorded live. And I forget if it was my question or if it was someone else's, but someone asked, like, is there more space for podcasts or how can someone give back to the community or whatnot? And everyone was like, yeah, absolutely. There can be more podcasts. You can give back to the community in a number of different ways. And I think it was Gemma asked a question to the other panelists or the other podcast hosts of like why they do their podcasts. And everyone had the same expected answer of like, you know, to give back to the community. We like giving back to the community. I think Andrew Mason and Jason Charns were like, well, we just like talking to one another. It's our best excuse to do that. And, but it was really, it was Jason Sweat who was like, yeah, I love giving back to the community, but also it's totally selfish of me to do my podcast because it gives me an excuse to talk to people that normally would not talk to me. And that hit home for me because I was like, I am not great at going and being like, hey, do you want to hang out? Do you want to talk? Do you want to chat? for no reason. But if there was a podcast recording involved, like suddenly now I can go and be like, hey, you seem interesting. Do you want to like sit down and talk or like hang out and we'll just record it and call it a podcast? So honestly, it was like, cool, this might work as my way of giving back to the community while simultaneously scratching my itch of like, I would like to talk to people and I sort of need an excuse to do it. That's the best way to look at it. And for me, I agree on the selfish aspect. Being able to go to Sin City or I'm so anticipating going to RailsConf just because there are so many guests that I've had over the last two years even that I haven't gotten to meet in person. And so just having that warm welcome of like, hey, I've talked to you. We haven't met, but it feels like we have. And I actually have this really cool artifact of the fact that it actually happened. Yeah, I agree. It is really cool to meet online friends in person. That is the number one reason I keep going to conferences is like it's a great way of depleting my social battery in like the best way possible. And they're spaced out perfectly enough that like I'm just recharged and then I go deplete my social battery, getting to interact with all these cool people and then I'm back to recharging and then there's another conference and it's this wonderful cycle. Totally agreed. Honey Badger is exception, uptime and cron monitoring all in one place and easily installed in your web app. Deploy with confidence and be your team's DevOps hero. I want to tell you about another awesome feature from our friends at Honey Badger. Have you ever wanted to update all your errors at once or set defaults for incoming errors? With Honey Badger Actions, you can do just that and a lot more. Actions come in two flavors, project actions and batch actions. With project actions, you can automatically assign errors to yourself or another team member, 
add tags to specific error classes and more. Batch actions are similar to project actions, but they can be applied to search results in the errors list. To dive into all things actions, head on over to honeybadger.io. Well, as I always wrap up my show, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Rails communities? I'm really excited for it. I know no part of the world is perfect right now. Like there's a lot of politics and everything and it's just another hurdle to get through, but every community is dealing with it really for Ruby and Rails. I think we have such a great community and even if it's right now, it's not the biggest community. That's fine. We're doing quality over quantity. And there's a lot of really awesome stuff that came out with Rails 7. It's coming with the future versions of Ruby 3. So I am super excited to see what happens. And hopefully we do get an influx of folk that fit well in our community because I'm excited to see what they make. I think the one thing holding back Ruby in comparison to some of the other languages right now is the amount of stuff you can do with Ruby. There's a lot of things you can do. I mean, there are satellites over our head right now that are running Ruby. There's a submarine in Japan that runs Ruby. Like you can do anything with Ruby. It just depends on how much effort you want to put into it in some cases. So I'm excited to see if someone can come in and get us into other areas outside of just web servers. I just recently programmed a little microcontroller because I needed something to do. And I ended up doing it in Python because there wasn't an easy way to run Ruby on it, but there was a really easy way to run Python. And I'm not 100% sure that I'm smart enough, skilled enough, or potentially even just have the time to build something that would make it easy to run Ruby on a microcontroller. But like, I'd be interested in contributing to that project. Someone just needs to run with it. There's some older projects like R2, and I don't know if it's Dino or Dino, but there's some older projects that would let you do Ruby on like those types of boards, but they're unmaintained now. And I don't know if that's as easy as someone picking them up and running with them or just starting from scratch with newer Rubies. I'm really excited to see what comes out of the future because I think there's so much awesomeness going on. There's a lot of really exciting people coming in. We already have such amazing people in the community. Sky's the limit. I love that so much. Well, Paul, we're going to need a dramatic transition because we're actually switching host seats right now. Receiving incoming transmission. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, I... All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Code and the Coding Coders Who Code It. Today, I am joined by the first ever winner of Who Wants to Be a Ruby Engineer, Brittany Martin. Normally, I would have Brittany introduce herself, but since I'm on her podcast slash doing things a little differently, I will read her bio to you. Brittany Martin is the engineering manager at Text Us and co-host of the Ruby on Rails podcast. She is the most extroverted introverted Rubyist you know. She's fiercely proud that a recruiter emailed her recently and signed off by telling her to keep doing burpees. And for some unexplainable reason, she loves doing burpees. I really do. <laughs> Never burpees for me. No. So for me, there's that brief moment where you are weightless. And I just love that feeling of hitting the floor. And then it's the ambition and the grit that causes you to press your hands into the ground and get yourself back up on your feet that I find just like really mentally stimulating. Hey, 
to each their own. I used to run <laughs> ultra marathons, so people think that's Woo! weird. Uh, no judgment. Just you said she loves burpees. And I was just like, oh, God, flashbacks to all the burpees that I've done in my life. Oh, no. Uh, so for those who are new to the show, basically the way this is going to go is I'm going to ask Brittany three questions. I'm going to ask, what are you working on? What blockers do you have? Or was there a blocker recently that you had solved and how did you solve it? And then we're going to wrap it up by letting Brittany share something cool or interesting that she's recently found or learned about. And it doesn't even have to be coding related. So with that being said, Brittany, what are you working on right now? Yeah, so I'm working on two different things right now. So at Textus, we recently launched a premium feature. And what that means is that typically on our SaaS platform, if you join as a user and you have an account, you have access to all the features we have. Every time we add a feature, you get it. Now we're finally starting to dabble in the idea of investing into these premium features where you have to pay additional money in order to access them, which is totally new to me. And the way that we built it is I'm very used to having complete control over what features a user is able to access, but we decided that we're going to let our billing system, Zorora, control all of that, which is really different for us. And then on the flip side, I'm about to close. So it's a Ruby on Rails backend with a React front end. And so we are getting ready to close our Rails role. So we keep growing the team, which is very exciting. And I'm starting to interview senior React candidates. And Drew, I don't write React. So, so that is currently the two things that I'm working on. That's got to be a pretty interesting challenge, trying to interview someone for a senior role in a framework that you don't write or don't have a ton of experience in. It's hard. I mean, for me, I'm really trying to interview for ambition and You and I just talked about this, but it's incredibly important that the people that we interact with are interested in the community. It is fascinating how many developers I interview who have no interest in being engaged in their community whatsoever. And I don't take that as a great sign. I know that people have busy lives, but it's not hard to sign up for a newsletter or listen to an occasional podcast or even just look over release notes. What do you think? No, I agree. Definitely preface it with it's incredibly hard to contribute to a community if you don't have a ton of time outside of your role. It's why I appreciate companies like Shopify who make it their mission almost to give back to open source or any company really that gives their employees time and says, hey, go contribute to open source or go write blog posts or like really encourage to give back. But to your actual point, like, yeah, it's not that tough and kind of a red flag for me, at least, if you're not subscribed to a newsletter or listening to a podcast like how are you staying on top of things is an interview question for us like how do you stay on top of the ruby and the rails communities and if someone's like oh i don't know whatever work tells me to do is what i look at sort of red flag for me it's not a deal breaker but it does make me wonder are you doing this just for the paycheck are you doing this because you enjoy it I completely agree. And the other thing that I'm looking for, too, because I'm typically round one on all of these interviews is asking them about their experience mentoring juniors. I had an interview the other day where I asked them if they had ever mentored juniors before and they said no. And I was like, well, is that something you're interested in doing? And they said no. And I was like, good day. (laughs) Like, (laughs) It was actually kind of great that they were that honest with me, because to me, the only way that this industry is going to get bigger and more stable and have wonderful people in it 
is if we are open to hiring juniors and mentoring them up. And so a big thing for me for interviewing both senior rails and senior react is you have to be interested in mentoring. Yeah, I agree. And to be fair, it's fine if someone's not interested Mm -hmm. in that kind of stuff. There's probably roles out there for a senior engineer with no mentoring, but mentoring is an extremely important at all steps of an engineering journey. Even at my level, I pick other engineers brains and I work with them and I'm trying to always improve. And it's really hard to improve, especially at the junior level, if you don't have someone there kind of helping to keep you on the right path forward. I deal with that a lot in my job right now where I'm constantly trying to figure out the best way to mentor folk because we have a lot of really great engineers and we have a lot of engineers that have a huge amount of potential. And I'm always trying to find a good way to get them to that next level without just feeding it to them, getting them to learn how to learn or getting them to be interested in the next thing while sticking close to that boring tech. It's not easy, but I think it's incredibly important. Do you have a framework for that? Do you know that when you're hiring? So for us, it's really hard for us to define what a mid-level developer is. I think everybody struggles with that. So we were recently hiring a mid-level rails. And so I know what to expect from a senior. I know what to expect for a junior. What does mid-level mean? And so for us, we need to sit down and really create a framework of like, this is the expectations here. It's good that you bring that up because I was a little worried that we were the only people who dealt with that. We're actually going to be hiring a few engineers. We actually have the job posting up now, but interviewing is really hard in general. Just finding that balance of making sure they're the right culture fit and making sure that they are still bringing a level of experience and expertise to the role, regardless of what level we're bringing them in for. But It is really hard to detect when someone is a junior versus a mid because I don't think that there's a clear like, this is when you stop being a junior. I deal with imposter syndrome all the time. Mm -hmm. I am constantly second guessing myself and looking stuff up and Googling and stack overflowing. And like, so it's hard to say like, oh, yeah, you'll be not a junior and more of a mid when you stop Googling everything. I'm like, nope, that's not it because I do that now. You'll be a mid not a junior once you're comfortable coming up with a solution from scratch maybe but i can do it i'm not very comfortable with it every single time so i think it's a lot of just feeling the person out and the way that we do it at within three right now is everybody comes in at the same level and then based on how you handle your first couple of tickets we sort of slot you into the right role and go from there. So maybe not the best way, but we're figuring that component of it out. And we've gotten some pretty awesome people so far. So hopefully we keep being real lucky with it. That's really interesting. I want to dig into that. So you'll hire somebody as a software engineer and you have some tickets that are allotted and then you'll have them work on those tickets and then you'll determine whether or not they're mid-level or senior, because that's kind of an interesting take. Yeah, kind of. During the interview process, we'll sort of make sure that they have the baseline skills to do the job. And then, yeah, everybody comes in at the same level. And if someone shows that they have skills that exceed their current level or expertise or communication style or whatever it might be, 
that their manager or a team lead decide like, hey, this person's probably the next level up. We approach it from there. Oh, that's so interesting. I might have to try that out. It's very interesting, I think, because it's so hard. Interview processes can be so, in my opinion, there is not a good way of interviewing engineers. I've done it a ton of different ways, both as the interviewer and the interviewee. And I really don't think that there's a really good way of interviewing engineers because I think we all think differently. We all work differently. And if you're just trying to get a job, you're going to act potentially a little differently than you would once you have the job and you're just working on tickets. Mm -hmm. So I think that coming in, everybody coming in at a certain level and then us assessing you on the job is at least a way of helping us manage that. Totally agreed. I mean, one blocker that I've hit is just how hot the hiring market has been. And so I had a much longer engineering interview process. It was me and then it was a team fit culture interview. Then they might speak to someone in HR and then they actually took a personality test. And then we moved on to the pairing exercise and then you had a conversation with the CEO. And so to me, it's really important that we get the right hire, but I got the feedback that it was far too long. And so part of me really misses having that full cycle because I felt super confident when I hired somebody, but you have to alter. And so we ended up slashing that in half. And now we have more team members involved in different stages just so we get more opinions in there. But it's hard. You know, it's really hard to know just from a Zoom interview. Hi, everyone. It's Brian, your co-host. I'd like to talk to you about something that is very near and dear to my heart. And that's the software consultancy I co-founded in 2001, Atlantis Technology. Some of the longtime listeners here may know Mirror was born out of Atlantis back in 2006 when we figured, let's try being Ruby engineers who recruit Ruby engineers. It was a unique idea that clicked and now has become my life's work. But while I've been growing Mirror for the past 15 years, Atlantis has continued to grow as well. Atlantis still specializes in Ruby on Rails software development and collaborates on some pretty meaningful projects. Here are a couple of my favorites. An interactive education tool to help elementary school students learn how to read. How cool is that, right? Second is a SaaS application for clinics and hospitals to treat patients remotely. So my point is the work we do is really meaningful and impactful to others. But the best part is the work gets done by great developers who also happen to be great people. Atlantis has always attracted egoless, empathetic engineers who love working together and we are actively seeking more remote engineers to help build the future for our clients. While I'm not doing the actual recruiting for Atlantis myself, since my time is so focused on Mirror clients, it'd be my privilege to connect you with our CTO and co-founder, John Collier, who after 19 years, I still describe as one of the most relentlessly positive human beings I know. If you'd like to meet John and hear more about working at Atlantis, just drop me an email at brian at mirrorplacement.com and I'll make an intro or apply directly at atlantistech.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. Tech skills are something that's important to assess at certain levels, but more than that, it's always for us, our top priority always will be culture fit. Like we have an awesome team. Our director of engineering, Kim, is the most amazing human being on the planet. And she is like fiercely we're not changing our culture. We're not bringing in poisonous people just because they're good engineers or anything. And like, so it's really nice that she is hell bent on like, no, it's got to be the right person from the culture fit first. And then we can assess their 
ability to actually do the job, which I've appreciated because we're very collaborative. We work together on projects. We pair a lot. So having someone that I can work with is awesome. Well, first of all, I mean, what a goal right there. If I could have my employees feel about me like you feel about Kim, then I will be good for year. Like 2022 is wrapped up. So (laughs) that's a goal to hit right there, Drew. I mean, that's wonderful that you feel that way about someone that you report to. But yeah, I mean, I think hiring is just always going to be an ongoing challenge. And it really feels like in the last year, just everybody's doing it, which is awesome. It means that all of these businesses are flourishing, especially I like to call it random on rails. There are so many applications out there built on Ruby on rails that you have never heard of. And they're all hiring, like, (laughs) which is super cool. Yeah, it is great. There is no shortage of job openings. And hopefully if we do our job right with the community, there will be at some point no shortage of skilled engineers. So that just goes back to what we're most excited about for the future of the Ruby and Rails community. But other than hiring, what kind of blockers have you had recently? Or is there something that was blocking you that you solved? So I currently have 10 feature developers that report to me. And it looks like we'll be hiring two more that we'll be starting soon. And then I'm hiring another two more. So you get where I'm going with this. Eventually, I'll have 14 feature developers working for me directly, which is too many. I love spending time with each of them. I love guiding their careers. I love, you know, pushing them in the right direction of what they should be working on. But at some point, I'm going to need help. So I would say that's currently a blocker. I can talk to the back end team pretty fluently about the Ruby that they're writing. And as I noted earlier, I can't with React. I've learned a lot in the last two years, but JavaScript and React is still not my forte. And so really getting someone in there to help me and to really direct the front end team in the right direction to go and making sure that we don't, you know, I think in the front end community, it's very easy to just drop what you're using and like pick up the hot new thing, maybe doing some hot new things, but for the most part saying we have a set stack that we use here on the front end. Let's keep going with that and just iterate a little bit of it. Right. The new hotness thing, it's always like an interesting side thing to just dabble in it. But when it comes to career or like what I would want in a production code base of my workplace code, like I love boring tech. Like I love tech Mm -hmm. that's expected that you can easily find answers on. And your main objective is just writing the business logic that you need and letting the framework or the tech stack do its thing because it's mature enough to be able to handle most of what you throw at it. At my previous role before within three, I had a very weird role. We would build internal applications or we'd be brought on to other teams to help get stuff over. It was very much, it felt a lot like a consultancy or like a contractor role, but in a very small space. And it was really random and I noticed that I really just liked being able to write the business logic of things rather than having to worry about like, okay, I've got to configure this whole thing to be able to send an email. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'll always work with Rails is like Rails does everything I need it to do so that I can focus on the business component, making the features and drive the product. Totally agreed. Is there anything more delicious than having a problem And going to Ruby Gems, looking up the problem, looking for a gem that might help you solve it, finding one, and it has like a zillion downloads and all kinds of Stack Overflow answered questions, like a ton of stars on GitHub. It just, it feels good. 
Absolutely. And then the other nice thing about being able to do that is it allows you to rapidly kind of vet that next feature, right? Like mm-hmm. not every feature that we build as engineers is going to be a hit or be useful. So how hard or easy is it going to be to rip it out if it doesn't serve its purpose or if it does end up serving its purpose and being amazing, how hard or easy is it going to be to work with or implement our own solution? And I feel like most gems do a really good job of just interacting nicely with Rails and not forcing themselves in there and feeling alien and weird. I always appreciate a gem that feels kind of like natural and easy to work with and then also easy to either extend or move to the next thing quickly. Totally agreed. So is there anything cool or interesting, doesn't have to be coding related, that you've recently found or learned or even just read about that you wanted to share? Have you ever just started listening to a podcast and you're like, where have you been this whole time? Because I love it so much for me. And shout out to my editor, Paul, who's editing this podcast as well. I absolutely adore the new podcast framework, friends. Have you had a listen yet? I have not, but I have heard of it. I follow Andrew on Twitter, so I've seen it come up a few times. I think you may have retweeted it a few Mm -hmm. times. So it is on the list of things, but... If I'm being completely honest, I'm a little behind on my current podcasts, so I need to kind of catch up before I add anything new on. Well, I'm going to assume that you're up to date on mine, but I will tell you what Framework Friends is about. So it's Aaron Francis and Andrew Culver. Aaron is deeply ingrained in the Laravel community, not Laravel, Laravel. (laughs) And Andrew is very much ingrained in Ruby on Rails because of Bullet Train. And so the idea behind the podcast is they talk about these two different frameworks and where there's crossover and where there's inspiration. And Drew, as someone who has been a Rubyist the entire time, I have dabbled in Visual Basic, Python, Pascal, Java, JavaScript. It's always been Ruby for me. Ruby is my number one. I know nothing about Laravel and really PHP, to be fair. And so it's really fun for me to have a reason. Like I get that hook of having Ruby on Rails speak, but I love that hook of getting to learn more about Laravel. Yeah. Laravel comes up a lot. I think Remote Ruby talks about it. Yes, they do. (laughs) There have been a few folks that have started to dabble with it. And so some code snippets and and whatnot have come through my feed recently. And I've looked at it. I'm like, this doesn't actually look like, I guess, to be fair, PHP sort of has like this negative connotation in my mind, just growing up with the web when I did. And it was like, it had to be PHP and PHP felt like a little bit of an awkward language to me at the time. But looking at what you can do with that framework just looks like, man, if I had to go work on something that wasn't Rails, like I sort of feel like I want it to be this. It feels like everything I love about Rails just in a different language. Drew, can you imagine a world where authentication is a first-class citizen and you don't need to set up a user model? Like, that's absolutely wild to me, but that is a given in Laravel. That is a hot topic that I I refuse to touch because I don't have (laughs) fireproof gloves on. (laughs) Yes, that for a lot of projects actually does sound awesome. I've never been turned off by device or any of the other solutions that we have in Ruby on Rails, but it did always feel like It's basically a given that any app you build is going to have some level of authentication like Mm -hmm. that should be built in at some degree. But, hey, some people complain that the battery's built in model of Rails 
already throws too much at us. So we would just be stoking that fire if we added another battery to the stack that you get. But it wouldn't bother me. But I'm also not one of those people that complain about Rails doing too much. So what Drew is just saying here, listeners, is if you want to approach him at RailsConf and either offer to do burpees with him or talk about authentication as a first-class citizen in Rails, he would be very excited about it. I mean... This is why I was a good contestant for you. (laughs) I would definitely be down to have that conversation with anyone. I think it is not just a lot of fun, but I also think it's extremely important to hear how other people think. We're not all going to agree on everything. But for me, there are some things that it's hard for me to wrap my head around, but I get to have a conversation with someone who thinks slightly differently or even dramatically differently than I do. And if I can start to wrap my head around their motivations for thinking or feeling that way, it helps me to kind of understand and reframe that problem in my head and just say, oh, okay, I, I understand it might not be for me. It might not be the way I want to do it, but I am really interested in like, hey, why don't you like this thing? Or you love Ruby, but you hate Rails. Why is that? What have you run into? Because so much of getting good at engineering in general is the experience, right? The best way to know if a design pattern works is to use it and see how it either fails or works as it grows and is used more and beat on by other engineers. But we don't all have that luxury of being able to just try a new design pattern willy nilly and and have the time to see it grow and see what happens to it after other engineers beat on it. So getting to talk to other people and learn about their experiences help to influence my future opinions, I guess, might be a slightly roundabout way of saying, like, I really like hearing about why people think the way they do, especially when they don't agree with me. Agreed. And that's why we need more cross community content. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's also why we need a very diverse community. It's important to get all it's everything, right? It's all genders or no genders or what have you and religions or races or what have you, but also like all of the second career devs are doing nothing but improving this industry because they're bringing different experiences and different ways of approaching problems or thinking through something. They're bringing something new to the table that we didn't have before and they're challenging the way we think. And that's always a good thing, at least to me. I actually don't know how you wrap up your show, Drew. (laughs) Oh, that's a good point. Right. Because you started interviewing me on my show, which is exactly what Andrew Mason and I said would happen if I ever had you on the show. That you would outpost <laughs> me on my own show. And it did just happen. I thought I was on your show there for a minute. <laughs> so normally the way that I would wrap up my show is just thanking you for being on the show and then asking where people can find you other than what I think is a little bit of an obvious way on the Ruby on Rails podcast. Uh-huh. What other ways can people find and interact with you? Yeah, you can reach me at brittanymartin.dev. I'm on Twitter, a terrible Twitter handle, Britt, B-R-I-T-T-J Martin. I chose that like 15 years ago and I've regretted it ever since, but I'm holding on to it. And Drew, I didn't get to ask you, how can folks reach you? So I am on Twitter, kind of. I do a lot of retweeting, less my own thoughts, more other people's, but I am on Twitter. It's at drbragg. My last name, Bragg, has two Gs. I also have a website that may or may not be revamped at some point in my lifetime. It's, again, drbragg.dev. 
And yeah, those are the two easiest ways to find and interact with me. And you can find any other way from one of those two sources. Well, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. And this crossover was was a lot of fun. Agreed. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.